I'm your host, Alexa. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with Anne Riggs, the founder of Slave Free Chocolate. Anne first learned about the labor rights issues in the cocoa industry about 15 years ago, and she's been advocating for change ever since. Slave Free Chocolate encourages consumers to petition chocolate companies to be more transparent and to change their unethical business practices. The site also has a list of slave-free chocolate companies. This episode is the second in our June Impactful series about the cocoa and chocolate industry. I am so excited to have on because she represents many consumer activists who want to see companies create change. Tell me a little bit, how did you like first learn about child slavery and child labor in the cocoa industry? Um, and how do you continue to learn about those topics? Yeah, yeah, very good question. Um, it was actually kind of random. I had done a lot of, I've always been kind of a social justice activist type person, right? So I was familiar with that kind of end of the stick. But I was in London and like, I can't remember, it was like 2006, maybe 2007, something like that. I was headed back, back to California, and I was sitting at a bar in Heathrow, like waiting for my flight. And I just happened to sit ne- randomly sit next to this man by the name of Humphrey Hawksley. He worked for the, where he worked, I think he's retired now, worked for the BBC at the time. And he was just coming back or going to Cote d'Ivoire, one of the two ways, I don't remember, um, to do a piece on child slavery in the chocolate industry. And being an American, and I'd never heard of it, I was like, that's, you gotta be kidding, really? Like chocolate, really? So when I got back to the US, I don't know if Google was up and running, I, yeah, whatever, right? We did back then, 2006, Yahoo did, or, or something like that. And I found out that, yeah, that was true. There was something called the Harkonnenko Protocol that was signed in 2001. Mm-hmm. And then I, but there wasn't a lot of information on it. Like I really, really, really had to dig. There was no website, there was nobody talking about it at all. I'm sure they did around 2001 when the Harkening Protocol was signed. Mm-hmm. But remember, that was 9-11, the year of 9-11, too. Mm-hmm. So like, any kind of any kind of interest in that subject just waned. I mean, just waned because of, you know, our wars with Iraq and all that kind of stuff took all the headlines. So there wasn't anybody, anybody working. OK, I don't say there wasn't anybody working on it. There was, you know, Terry Collingsworth in the lawsuits, but there was no activist group had picked him up nothing it was just there was no there was nothing on the radar so I thought well shoot <laughs> you know like if there's I, you know if there's nobody doing anything I can't donate I can't volunteer time I guess okay I guess it's me and so that's when I started Slave Free Chocolate and I got and I still do get all my facts from the Department of Labor mm-hmm. right so at that time after the Harkonnen Girl Protocol was signed in 2001 the Department of Labor hired the Tulane University's Payson Center to do four watchdog reports. The first one was going to come in 2005, like how are we doing on the Harking and Protocol? That had been published maybe a few months, a year or something like that after, after I got on board. But that was my first report, right? That was my first information. And they'd given like an F. I'm like, wait a minute. You know, I'm like, wait a minute. This, you know, we're talking Hershey's. Nestle, Cargill, Archidiani, Mudlin, and they promised to take care of it and they have the money. So I thought this is ridiculous. I'm going to do what I can on this subject. And I started Slifey Chocolate. It's been like 15 years now. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting that you first learned about this topic in London because there's such a history of chocolate companies in England. And that's, you know, one of the countries where it first became 
um, so popular to drink cocoa and to eat chocolate. It was England. Yeah, they're they're chocolate fanatics over there. I, more so, I think, than they are here. You know, right. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. before we I got think we chocolate, we like chocolate or we may love chocolate, but to them, chocolate's like a necessity. Mm, yeah. So you've been working since 2007 in this area. Yes. What, what progress have you seen in that time? Okay. So that gets interesting because, you know, things have veered. Um, when I first started, the words trafficking was not a household word, right? There might have been sometimes you'd see like Dateline NBC would have like a salacious show about like maybe sex trafficking and that, you know, that kind of stuff. But it was, it wasn't talked about anything else. Modern day slavery wasn't a word. Mm. Um, really the traffic, the sex trafficking thing was, I mean, it was, there was just a little bit on it. Right. And so what I've seen is on one hand, I've seen a ton, an absolute freaking ton of awareness on, you know, child labor, modern day slavery, trafficking, whether it's, you know, the cocoa kids or sex trafficking or bricks or that a ton of awareness on it. And then I've seen zero results. So it's sort of branched out. So literally zero results after all this. Yeah. Um, I've also watched. Um, so basically, slavery talk, it really is to here to put pressure on the candy companies that promise to remedy the, the, this to fulfill their promises, you know, in, in one fell swoop. That is what we heard to do. In whatever way, whatever, whatever scheme we can come up with, you know, we'll try it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've seen with these companies in the last 15 years, when I first started, you go to Hershey's website, they didn't talk any, they didn't talk about their farmers at all. Right. They didn't have anything about the farmers. They didn't have anything like that. And the more work that we did or other groups came on board, Safety Talk, that is really all about, um, turning people into activists. You know, I want to, get other people to talk about this too. So mainly we're trying to get other people to do whatever they can to spread awareness or to pressure the candy companies, all this kind of stuff. And so it took like, what I've seen them is like, I've seen them hire a lot of PR agents. I really, they should have put my kids, the PR companies that they, they had hired for my kids in college. Um, because then in like, say maybe five years later after pressure grew, what did they do? They put things on their websites like, we abhor child labor in the chocolate industry. We're doing everything we can. We've heard rumors that there is some child labor, da, 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 da. And it takes, you know, seven seconds to bamboozle, you know, somebody with hmm. a website page. And so I've seen all their, those growths, the more pressure they would get, I would see things like they would come up. I remember Nestle would come up with a thing Well, we just, and this was probably 2010, 11, 12. We just heard some rumors that there might be child labor, in the chocolate plantations, we were so aghast that we hired this little NGO, never heard of some, you know, like, you know, freshly baked little tiny auditing group to go over there and do an audit for us. And guess what? They didn't really find any at all, right? Mm-hmm. Then you've got the Department of Labor, you know, coming back with the numbers are raising every single year. So what I've right. seen is zero results, but I've seen all sorts of smoke and mirrors all sorts of initiatives and everything. And then I think where it landed down today are the the overuse and the wrong use of two words. One of the word, when it comes to what I care about, right? One of the words is sustainable, right? Sustainable doesn't mean that there's fair labor practices at the end. It it means you literally really means that you need to have another crop next year. Are you going to have another crop? Whatever it is, is your agriculture sustainable, right? But they, but the companies have used this as a big relating marketing and world. So 
Now, if you go to whoever's website, right, you'll, they'll have like a, 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 a section called sustainable and underneath sustainable, they'll have some kids and school uniforms and stuff like that saying, you know, we are working with the farmers to make sure that their children are going to school, da, 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 da. And then, but in reality, you know, they're doing what they can to pay for the, the lowest amount for their beans. And they're not taking care of anything other than like little paltry things to, to um, combat the work that me and tons of other people have been, have been doing on it. So that's what I've seen, all sorts of crazy stuff. All these different initiatives, so-and-so's committing this, so-and-so's committing that. But if anything was working at the end of the day, we would see those numbers stabilize or go down, but we're seeing them go up. Right. Yeah. It seems like, it seems like some of the awareness among consumers has gone up, but that hasn't, hasn't changed corporate practices quite yet. No, it didn't. It didn't. And, and that's, you know, a big thing I want to talk about today is how, like you're looking at this marketplace, how it's shifted. So we have, um, but go ahead, ask your other question. We can get to that later. Cause that really works when I want to talk about Tony's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I wanted to ask about. So speaking of progress, uh-huh. um, for most people who know anything about, you know, the human rights issues and, and slavery in the cocoa industry, they know about Tony's, right. Tony's Chocolate Only, um, uh-huh. and they advocate for a slave-free chocolate industry to change, you know, the cocoa industry. Um, you keep a slave-free chocolate list on your website, but you recently took them off your list. So tell us a little bit about that decision. Yes. The the list of ethical suppliers, okay, by organization isn't here to promote or not to promote any chocolate company per se, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the reason there is a list of slavery, of slavery companies. And actually when I first started this, the list, there were only five companies that could have been put on there, say in 2007, because it was before the bean to bar boost of small craft artisan chocolate, right? So it's just a handful of companies and they were, one of them was Tony's, Theo, um, Eskenazi chocolate, um, divine equal exchange, Basically, I might be forgetting somebody, but there's only like five companies on there. Um, and they didn't necessarily really want to, you know, the little bit, the a little bit, you know, they, they didn't really want to engage with me because I've got the dark, dirty secrets of their industry. If nobody knows about the dark, dirty secrets of the industry, then we don't need to talk about it ourselves either, really, except for these few companies. And Tony was one that really was the first one to talk about child slavery in their own industry. Mm-hmm. And the reason that the list started was if as an activist, you know, I give a speech, I speak to a school, I speak to a church, I speak to a civics group or wherever, you know, as an activist, you have to give somebody a call to action, right? If you get somebody emotionally concerned about these kids and think, well, what can we do? Well, one of them is not to purchase slave tainted chocolate. Mm -hmm. So the list is really a call to action for these that said, I, you know, I think these, these companies are doing really, really great work. I think that they're very innovative in showing the way that the world, you know, can, you know, make chocolate bars that aren't, you know, tainted with child labor and all that. I mean, I think they're all great, but it's really just a call to action. I'm not here to, promote, you know, I don't charge anybody for the list or anything like that. It's a call to action and to support the companies that are obviously doing the right thing. And so I knew that early on that Tony's was having Barry Calibre, like probably the biggest complicit bad actor in this whole thing, mm-hmm. make their chocolate for them. But I thought, well, you know what? They were also spreading a lot of awareness, all right? And so I just left them on the list and I just like, well, 
you know, sometimes I try to work with them. They, they always seem to have like an attitude, like they're, they're going to change the chocolate industry by themselves. And that's part of their little pitch. And so they were, you know, they didn't seem to want to engage with the other players, me, Terry Collingsworth, all these other people working hard on this. They want to engage with them. So I just left them on the list. And then around November, December, I helped put an amicus brief together for Doe versus Nessie and Cargill that went to the Supreme Court, right? Mm-hmm. And in doing so, what we were trying to show is, you know, because you know, America's always just based on money and business, is, and it's true, that the, if you're a small artisan, you know, you're Alexa Chocolate, you're, you want to start your own Alexa Chocolate Company, right? <laughs> and you're going to just get, you know, slave, you know, cl- you know cl- beans that are clean and all that. Well, obviously your chocolate bar is going to cost more then if you're paying rock bottom poverty, you know, below poverty living prices for your beans, you're, you're being, bar is going to cost more. But if you go to Hershey's website, if you go to Nestle USA website, they will tell you that their, their stuff is sustainable and they're working really hard on this issue. So it's kind of like a wash, but one of you is lying and one of you is actually doing a soup to nuts job of not partnering with any of those companies. So mm-hmm. once I was getting these guys on board, going to these chocolate companies on the list, asking them to help with the amicus brief. They were like, why? We don't even, and I heard that Tony's was going to do a little part for some sort of brief. And they're like, we don't even want to work with Tony's. We don't want to even be on the same brief with Tony's because we all know that they're like, quote unquote, like sort of like cheating in this whole thing. And like, Mm -hmm. I know, I know, I know they are, but they spread a lot of awareness. And then I got to the point and I did some soul searching like in December and said, you know what? Tony's has always said that we're going to change industry from within. We're going to change Barry Calibol from within. And they've had 16 years and nothing's been dented. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're, you know, I think they started out with really, really great intentions, but those people that started the company are no longer there. Yeah. You know, they're the fastest growing chocolate company. They're great. They're brilliant marketers, but their results, they, they haven't shown any results really. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, you can't, from what I understand by researching and working on this issue for 15 years is it really comes down that those who created the problem have to solve the problem, right? You can buy all the Alexa artisan chocolate you want. It's not going to dent the, you know, the hundred, you know, billion dollar industry. Think of all the, I don't have these statistics on the top of my head, but I'm we're talking like millions of tons or whatever, tons of Halloween chocolate, Valentine's Day chocolate, right? All that, you know, the artisan chocolate is like dropping the thing. And the problem with how that is and reason why Tony's beans may or may not be all that clean and stuff like that is all these beans in the poor areas of the cocoa growing areas in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, they all get mixed up along the way, right? Mm-hmm. So how yeah. do you know whose beans are not in this and that? Um, so they all have to do it together. So even until they said, well, we're going to ch- change, you know, Barry Calibut from within, it's not going to take just Barry. Ca- None of them can do it. None of them can do it by themselves. Hershey can't do it by themselves because they all are like in a kind of like, I would, I, I'll use the word cartel. They're kind of like in this cocoa cartel. They all buy the beans together. They all kind of divide up the beans together. And, you know, they have some programs. Another word they don't really like is traceable, right? Well, you could trace something down to a farmer that's not making a living wage. Okay. So what? It's traceable. What's tra- what does traceable really mean? It's a verb. Right. Right. right? Yeah. It's not, it's not a, it's not a noun. 
it's not a solution. It's just a verb. So yeah. between sustainable and traceable and our beans are traceable. Well, you can't prove your beans are traceable because probably along the line, they're getting all mixed up with the other beans. Mm-hmm. And sure. Let's say you are okay. Alexa artisan chocolate from, and you get your, your, your cacao from Colombia, right? You can trace that, but that's not where the problem is. That's great. That's great that you're showing your traceable. I'm not against that, but mm-hmm. when it comes to the beans that are all mixed up, it's almost impossible to say that they're traceable. And Tony's, you know, in order for you to say that there's no child labor in your supply chain at all, you'd have to have a full workforce of paid adult laborers. And when Tony's called me, the Paul from Tony's called me up, and they'd put on a big press release, you know, when they were kind of combating me kicking them off the list. They, you know, I talked to them in person and they said, well, you know, and they, so I asked them about this. It was on one of their press release. They said, yeah, when we did an audit, some of our firms that we buy from, they said there's 300, they found 367 cases of illegal child labor mm. and no cases of um, adult slave labor. So I, I think it's impossible to swear that there's no child labor when, when you're on a farm and you're not paying a, a full price, right? So then I said, they said they found and they remedied 222 cases of illegal child labor. And I said, oh, how did you remedy those children? You know, that's great. What did you do? There's only one answer. But the only clear answer would be they were replaced with adult paid laborers, but they weren't. They talked to the parents and said, this is illegal. You can't use your kids. They need to go to school. But we're talking about areas that don't have schools. They don't have medical clinics. I mean, they're so poor. And the reason they're so poor is because these big cocoa companies do everything they can to pay as little as possible for their beans. Mm. So I know these prices fluctuate, but so these are kind of round numbers, but if you could say, but these are good general round numbers. So yeah, let's say a a living wage for a ton of beans is $3,000. All right. Mm -hmm. The big cocoa companies are paying about $1,200, right? Fair trade pays about $1,400 for a ton of beans, but it's still half of what they can make. They can, they can, you know, they need to just to be poor, just to be right. poor, right? And then Tony's pays more than um, fair trade, but they're not paying three thousand dollars. They're paying like mm-hmm. six. You know what I mean? So it's all kind of it's all this kind of thing. So any topic about we're going to make it st- traceable, we're going to make it sustainable, any of that stuff, unless you're paying a living wage for those beans, there's no way you can even begin to guarantee that you're not using exploited labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds to me like you're critical of Tony's, both for the fact that they can't guarantee that there's no child slavery in their supply chains, but also yeah. because they haven't produced the results that they are saying that they want to create, you right. know, within right. the industry. Right. And, and, and they may be coming up with some really interesting ways to make things traceable, da, da, da. But until... And there are some interesting initiatives coming out of the world this way, right? You know, like traceable apps and things like that. I mean, that's all fine and dandy, but it's worthless if the farmers aren't making a living wage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a few questions I want to ask you from there. Um, but I do want to ask about, yeah, those sort of, sort of larger conditions. We're talking about, you know, eradicating the worst forms of child labor and child slavery on cocoa farms. How, how do we fight those while looking, you know, at these larger issues of poverty and inequality? How, how do you sort of square those issues with um, the existence of child slavery? Well, it's because of, um, it's because, the, okay, the farmers, the farmers, the cocoa plantations that are now in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire have only been there since like late 1970s, mm-hmm. right? 
And at that time, so it was mid 1970s, something like that. And at that time, well-meaning organizations went to these really, really poor countries, right? Who had subsistence farms, right? And so a typical person, which turned into a typical cocoa farm, would be, I think, between like six and eight hectares, right? And so that's maybe what, like 12 acre farm. I mean, that's really, really small. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not a legit farm, really. It's just like a plot of land. All those farmers that really do own that land were subsistence farmers. They probably had yams, maybe some bananas and chickens, you know, stuff that grew naturally in that area, but they were still super poor. Well-meaning groups came in, like the governments, World Bank, those kind of groups came in and said, hey, if you, you know, if you take, if you rip out your yams and your, you know, your bananas or whatever and grow cacao, then your village and then you are going to raise your standard of living enough that you're going to get a school in your village. You're going to get a medical clinic in your village, right? And so they said, okay, great. And they, you know, Cargill, Mandalas, Barry Calabal helped them, you know, get their cocoa plants in there. But the problem is they were never received a price increase for their beans. That Coco Cartel does everything they can to try to keep that price at rock bottom, right? Mm-hmm. And so they've never received a, so in the beginning, they were able to pull in migrant groups, legit migrant groups from even the poorer countries of Burkina Faso and Mali. So families would come in in the harvest time, help the, help the farmers with the harvest. They needed extra hands, get paid, legitimately get paid. And then they'd go back and maybe come back every year. Well, as their cost increases, you know, as they're not seeing any schools built, as they're you know, lives are getting harder because they're not receiving any more money for their beans. They can't afford the regular migrant laborers anymore. So what do they do? There's no school. They haven't raised enough money to build a school. So the kids aren't really going to school, right? Especially way deep in the bush, no schools. Um, children climb up these trees. They chop the cacao pods down. They're probably like this big, but they chop them down with a machete. Of course, of course they're going to get caught. Okay. When you have a child wielding a machete. Um, so without... So they've had to use their kids. And when sometimes they don't have enough kids, they are um, buying kids from Mali and Cote d'Ivoire. Sometimes the parents are selling these children. Sometimes these kids are coerced because there is a president. Remember, there is a president for migrant, for legit migrant labor from those two countries to come over, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe some parents are really poor say, well, okay, we're going to send our 12-year-old for the season, but he'll be back at the end of the year, but he doesn't come back. Right. There's, you know, I mean, they don't have enough information on that. The kids will say, Hey, you want to go um, pick, you, you want to help harvest cacao for a season? You'll get X amount of money and you can return home at the end of the season. Sure. Why not? And that's how these kids are getting exploited because of the president of real migrant labor. Mm-hmm. So, so that is where that came from. So it is all, it all stems from poverty and it really all stems from, you know, these, these corporations, if you're the head of Hershey, if you're CEO of Hershey, what is your number one priority? Profit for your shareholders. If you don't do that, you get fired and you don't get your $600 million bonus or whatnot. Right. So we're, it's a problem between how our world looks to try to solve slavery problems. And then we have the, um, the American ways that corporations are treated like individuals, you know, it's that combination of it that does this, but Going back, these companies, if they wanted to change, they could, but something yeah. really has to make them change. And I, I don't know what it is. I keep trying. Like, you know, I worked with, a, I, I sent a bunch of letters. So I talked to the Catholic church, said, hey, you guys need some good press. <laughs> you know, you're right. Okay. You guys need some good press. What about this? It would just take something, somebody really powerful to say, hey, we're setting up 
you know, we're, we're going to bring all the CEOs or whoever from the six companies that are getting sued in the lawsuit and say, let's straighten this out. What can we do? You know, I don't think they, I don't think the price of chocolate's going to triple. Think of all they spend on fighting um, Doe versus Nestle. Mm-hmm. Right. So they get a bunch of the PR things for, you know, slavery chocolate. So I, I, I think it can be done. I just don't know how it gets done. So I do want to talk about that Supreme Court case. So in December, for our listeners, a case concerning child slavery and trafficking in the cocoa industry was argued in front of the Supreme Court. It's been working its way through the courts for years. Um, but now we should get a decision, you know, really within the next month. Um, tell me a little bit about your involvement with the amicus brief, like you mentioned, and really like what significance will that decision hold for, for your activism and, and what you do? Oh, well, I think it's, I think it, this is, this is huge on, on like a world level too, right? And it's, it's not like, I think, I hope, obviously I hope we win, but I know that historically the alien tort statue has not done very well when it comes to the side of like the little guy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's been kicked out many times, but when Terry Collingsworth and his group started that up, like just around the same time I did 2006, 2007, that was really the only thing that they could figure out to sort of latch up, you know, that the, there was the only platform that they could really step onto. But where it has bigger implications is basically if, if, it, if um, Doe loses, then what it's saying is U.S. corporations basically have immunity for human rights violations in any country, right? It, it spreads out way, way past chocolate, I think, way past chocolate, right? You know, look at all the problems we have with the oil industry in places, you know? So it, it, so on that, so if they lose, I think it's really bad news because why not step up, you know, buying slave-made goods from China, why not step up buying, you know, all, you know, think of all the different areas where we have, you know, slave labor and manufacturing and stuff like that. Then these countries will not, these companies, the U.S. corporations won't be held accountable. Mm-hmm. If, if Doe wins, right, then it will have the reverse effect, I would think. They say, oh, they're going to think, holy cow, that was just six plaintiffs, you know, there's, you know, there's millions of plaintiffs of these kind of things even out of the world. Right. And I think they're saying, like, if they win, then the, then they're going, wait a minute, I was enslaved to make Nike shoes in, I don't know, Indonesia or something like that. Then I think that the, you, I think we'll have to, like, U.S. corporations will have to start operatingly differently or they're going to have so many lawsuits on their hands. It would be insane to probably bring down these companies, right? Mm-hmm. So I think what would be really cool would be is, you know, like before the, you know, if you get if those companies could come together and sit at the table and say, okay, we're going to have to rearrange things. We're going to have to work with that. I think that I'm sure that the governments of Cote d'Ivoire and the governments of Ghana will work with this cartel. If they sit down and they say to them, Hey, you know what? We have to fix this. You know, um, we need to change, you know, their, those big cocoa companies are their customers. I'm sure they could straighten it out, but Mm -hmm. it would be a big mess and it's just easier and it's more profitable to, you know, throw up the sustainable word or, and going back to that other point is what I've seen in this industry is we do have so many consumers, like you, me, myself, right, that don't want to participate in, you know, be at the end of, you know, horrific child labor practices. But if we're getting bamboozled by the companies that say that they are cleaning up this mess, then where do we go for the truth? 
it yeah. gets really tough, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I said, girl, like, I don't want to, or somebody caught after me the other day because I said, I don't want to, I don't, I didn't run, I didn't create the list of, you know, ethical supply companies to create just a woke market that just operates separately from the slave market, right? It's to sure. get people to turn around and pressure those companies. So talking about companies and sort of their role in it, um, part of that Harkin Angle protocol was the idea of requiring this no slavery stamp on chocolate sold in the U.S. Yes. Um, do you still support that and the idea of that stamp and what would have to happen for that to actually happen? Okay, that would mean that they're legislated. And so, yeah, I think we should have a slavery stamp there too, but I don't know how it's going to happen because I really think that those companies have done such, such a good job at protecting their narrative, that would be really tough. So yeah, I definitely think something should be legislated. Obviously, I hope to, hope to hack that Doe wins the thing that would start the, that would start the ball rolling. There's another mm-hmm. lawsuit that um, Terry Collingsworth put forth, um, which is Doe versus six people. And a law changed in the U.S. that it used to be, um, it used to, they opened up something that was only criminal. It was like, it was, you could only say, somebody could only be criminal health for trafficking somebody, but now they opened it up to a civil lawsuit. So he was able to start another one that came out in, I think, January or February. I mean, I think you know, they're going to be fighting those, but those, nothing really changes in the U.S. without le- legislation of some sort. Yeah, um, yeah. Or they just have to get scared off their rocker because they're losing these lawsuits and that's going to cost them more than mm-hmm. PR, PR initiatives. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, the U.S. does have an outsized, you know, amount of power in, in this conversation, especially as consumers. I'm wondering if you could tell everyone who eats chocolate, whether in the U.S. or in the U.K., um, what, what would you tell every chocolate consumer given the opportunity? Oh, given the opportunity, I would say what, what, what is going to change these companies is pressure. Obviously buy slave free chocolate, obviously do that. Right. But you can buy all the slave free chocolate you want. There's not enough concerned consumers that will scare these chocolate companies, but what can scare those chocolate companies is to write them, continue to write them. You can go on slavefreechocolate.org. And our like, you know, take action page. I've got all the email addresses linked to like the customer service. Um, you can even copy paste letters. I think that the more they're deluged with, we know you're lying about this. We know that these numbers are going up. We know you're not really, you know, I don't believe you. When, you know, they'll send you back a canned letter saying we abhor child, you know, labor in any situation. Of course, for Hershey's, we love children. Da, 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 da. go back and say, well, prove it to me, you know, let's just keep, I think, keep dogging them to worry them that, um, you know, something's going to have to change. You know, this is a consumer problem. I mean, this isn't like something that we have no control over. This is something we put in our mouths and we buy at the grocery store to make ourselves feel better for five minutes. We have all the power here. You know, it's just, how do you, how do you get mass awareness on something to go past all the smoke and mirrors PR to say, no, we really want you to change this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, within, I mean, we were talking in the beginning of our conversation about this larger um, human trafficking and modern slavery movement that's happened. And I think chocolate is such a unique instance within that movement, just because of our our consumer connection to the issue. Right. Right. It's like when um, 
I mean, I know I'm sure there's probably still some problem area in diamonds, but just at the same time I started all this stuff. I remember the movie Blood Diamond came out. I don't know if you ever saw it, but mm-hmm. it's probably 10, 15 years old now with he was Leonardo DiCaprio, but you could have taken that same exact script and taken out the word diamond and put in cacao. It would have been the same exact story. Right. But it was easy for us to rally around that because how many diamonds do most people buy during the year? Zero, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, how many diamonds have you bought this year? Not many. <laughs> Zero, right? Zero, right? But chocolate is like, oh, wait a minute. We're talking chocolate. You know, it gets, it's yeah. on a, a different psychological level to say we can rally around no diamonds, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be the same thing when it comes up with a coltane in um, batteries, right? Yeah. Right. How are we going to get, how are we going to get around that? We all need a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah. unique issue. So we've yeah. talked a lot about chocolate. I'm wondering what is your favorite brand of chocolate for consumption? Okay. I don't really have a favorite brand. I have to say, because I'm a middle-aged person, I didn't grow up on artisan chocolate or anything like that. I, I literally grew up with like Hershey's, Nestle, right. Hershey's, <laughs> Nestle, right? Kit Kat or whatever, right? So I, I do, do kind of like milk chocolate, but I have grown my taste into... And a lot of people make this kind of flavor, but my favorite kind of chocolate, my favorite grown-up chocolate is chocolate that has um, chili peppers in it and cinnamon. Mm. Like the kind of, there was one, I can't yeah. think, it was a slave-free company, but they had, it was almost like, it was, it was so grown-up that it, the chocolate and it had these cinnamon, like sparkly things like those, what are those candies called? The kind that popped in your mouth. Sure, sure. You know, something like that. <laughs> so, I, you know, there's a lot of different brands that I like, but so I can't really pick one out, but I do love okay. dark chocolate, the cinnamon, the chili chocolate. I love mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm, hot chili, hot chili cherry chocolate would be my favorite from whatever Slafy brand. And I still like milk chocolate. Um, and Divine makes a really great milk chocolate. Okay. It's okay. called Seriously Smooth Milk Chocolate. So that's my go-to for milk chocolate. And for any of the artisan slavery brands, I, I try to find the um, chili ones. Gotcha. Well, I think I think talking about value is so important when we talk about chocolate because that's one of the main issues is not you know paying workers for the value that they're creating and paying those farmers for their value. And it's important that you know as consumers we value this product that so much work does go into. Yes, and I think if the, at the end of the day, if we can clean this mess up, those perfect, it's not like we're going to go from paying. $1.50 per pair of chocolate bar to $17. It's not that, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know I've done little surveys. I, I don't know. There was not one person out there that wouldn't say, oh yeah, I'll pay 50. If, if you even got to be that much higher, I'll pay 50 cents more for my chocolate. Mm-hmm. I'll pay a dollar more for a chocolate bar. It means there's no slavery attached to it. Right. So we've just had this kind of, you know, rift here. Consumers, mm-hmm. if they know, they pay more, they pay more for it. Yeah. Well, I think we're at a unique, you know, point in sort of this whole conversation that's really been happening for the past two decades about chocolate and the industry with this court decision coming out soon. So I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to talk to you and get your thoughts on that. To learn more about child labor and chocolate, be sure to check out our impactful article from earlier this week. You can learn more about the Harkonengel protocol and the current Supreme Court case in that article create an account to create impact and to support this month's nonprofit partner, Green America. We'll be speaking with a representative from Green America in a future episode. See you next week. Thank you.